something, someone here, somebody's spoken something over your life of what you cannot do or you will not do. Someone's devalued you in some way. Maybe you have that talk in your own head about who you're not more than who you are. Does that resonate with anyone? I want you to raise your hand. Thank you. I'm gonna ask you to do something if you raise your hand that you're not gonna regret. I'm gonna ask you to come up to this altar right now. Somebody's spoken some curse or something over your life or hurt you or mocked you, accused you, said something behind your back. I want you to come forward. We're gonna deal with the residue of that right now. Someone has sought to define you other than the way God has defined you. That may include you yourself. Someone's actions have hurt you and sought to form an identity in you that is not what God wants for you. Feel free to come. Thank you, sir. Good for you. Good for you. I want you and the congregation to put your hand towards these people. We're gonna deal with this right now. We have no time or space in our life for such nonsense. Zephaniah 3 and 15 says, God sings over you. What he sings, he sings truth. He sings truth that emancipates us from things that seek to bind us. When he sings, he speaks and he sings truth in a rhythm with the Father and the Spirit of God. Psalm 32 and seven says he sings songs of deliverance over you. No one in your life has the right to define you other than who God says you are, and that includes you yourself. He sings songs of deliverance over you. He dances over you. He rehearses melodies that go into your soul, whether you realize it or not, that redefine you, my friend. Redefine you. The old has passed away and all things have become new. You are a new creation in Christ. You are not to be hindered by the voices of your past, the actions of those who lack the capacity to be for you who you needed them to be. Though you trusted them, they spoke the wrong word over you with the wrong spirit at the wrong time and they are not accurate, they are not loving, and they are not kind. But your Lord sings over you this morning songs of freedom, emancipation, deliverance, where you can leave this altar free, innocent, no longer bothered by the voices of the past, your own included. Let me be your pastor for five minutes, please. I speak love over you, joy over you, blessings over you. I speak the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you ladies at this altar are daughters of the King. Your bridegroom will return for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. You are innocent, you are cleansed, you are sanctified, you are his, you are bought at a price. Men, 
Stand up and be who he's called you to be. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. All things are possible. You don't have to walk in weakness or in shame or remorse. You're a child of the living God. You exist for his purpose, his glory, his enjoyment, his pleasure. You are his treasure. I speak blessing over you, power over you, insight, wisdom, clarity, joy, the fruit of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit. I speak the truth over you. I cancel null and void the enemy's rhetoric. Lies, abusive lies, counterfeit. Be done, be gone, be cleansed, move on. In the power of the Spirit of the living God. Thou art the temple of the Spirit of God. You are a reservoir of the Spirit of God. You are consecrated and set apart for the glory of God. The past is the past. Press on toward the goal to win the prize to which you've been called heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now let's worship him for the emancipation of the very ideology that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Let's worship him in this place. You are free in Jesus' name. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, please. Teaching moment. You're new to a church, trying to figure out what this church is all about. Some of you don't know, ask you to come to the front, which is totally not accustomed to what you're accustomed to. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, here's what I suggest you do. You know that you trust the Lord, but when you go to a new church, what you need to ask the Lord, ask him to be clear and obvious with you if you can trust the leadership in that church. That's what you need to do. Trust the leadership. Ask him if you can trust the leadership of the church that you are visiting or new to. Amen. Okay, this is by far a banner afternoon in the lives of these disciples. I mean, come on, the transfiguration? I mean, really, how do you top that? First of all, they don't even know what it is. Then it is. Then they got to process it. Let me read it to you. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. That's the first Three outside the bullseye in the dartboard. Pete, Jim, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. They got to be Googling that at the time, right? What is, what is this? And you know, there's always someone, usually my wife, she says, well, you got the, right, you got the answer right in front of you, which is my phone. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Hello. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elisha talking with Jesus. Wow. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's, is, it is good for us to be here if you wish. 
I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. <laughs> uh, Peter is... Uh, Peter just steps right out there and says, you know, let me, let me go ahead and get some things situated here. And then he gets interrupted by the father. You know, sometimes it's just better to keep your mouth shut. You know what I mean? I mean, come on. There's a lot to be said for that. He's actually interrupting the father, getting in the way of the father. <clears throat> when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Well, I guess so. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as we were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've, what you've seen here <laughs> uh, until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. In other words, once I come up out of the ground, it's fine. You can tell anybody you want. I mean, that'll pretty much be the, the great finale there. And the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John uh, the Baptist. Okay, what in the world is going on here? Why these three? You know, it doesn't seem like God does random. Does God do random? Oh, he doesn't do random. So you come across a passage like this, and what do you do? You, well, you almost got to pause. I mean, you got to stop. You got to ask, ask questions. Why these three? What, uh, what meaneth this? Uh, what do we know? Well, we got two Old Testament figures. Uh, Moses, kind of like a shepherd, even has a staff. And then you got Elijah, the prophet. So you got this shepherd, pastor, prophet thing going on. They're both Old Testament. And then you got Jesus, and then somehow or another we're dovetailing into John the Baptist going forward, or some sort of transition carrying on there. We also know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not like he was doing something so different then, and he's going to go to something totally new now. So I asked the question, what do these two figures have in common, and why would they be included in the transfiguration, uh, as opposed to anyone else in the Old Testament for that matter? Here's what I come up with. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and in some way, shape, or form, these two figures are a statement to us, handpicked by God sovereignly, and they each had a ministry, and God worked with each of these two, then maybe, perhaps, there's something there for me, there's something there for you in the commonality that we have of this um, consistency between these figures. Maybe even they share things in common. 
So maybe that's a start in understanding the transfiguration, perhaps. You know, God uses all kinds of people over thousands of years. 40 plus of them wrote the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not knowing what future writers would write, and not all of them knowing what previous writers have written, but yet they're all consistently moving through the same book with the consistent message of the thread of the Spirit of God and the purpose of God throughout mankind, the redemption of mankind. So though we got two people here, <coughs> we got to mention John the Baptist, they may be three different people and Jesus in the center of them, but there's some commonality, there's some thread there, and perhaps it's something that we can learn from. Number one, both of these men understood what it meant to be alone. What do you mean? Well, oftentimes in their life, they were the sole voice. When seemingly no one else was with them, they, for all intents and purposes, thought they were all alone. They were some sort of voice like John the Baptist calling in the wilderness. They were standing up to defend the cause of Christ, though they didn't feel like anybody was on their team. They were alone almost like a last man standing kind of feel. Though they weren't, they felt that way. They actually understood the differentiated between being alone and being lonely. Sometimes they were both. But what they had in common more than anything else is that they were alone, oftentimes alone. You can't dispute that. They had that in common. Jesus, Matthew, Mark 1 and 35 says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. All right, well, all three of them, on occasion, made sure that they were alone. What mean at this? What about us? Do you have any time, and do you have enough of this time in your diet of your life where you are alone? I didn't say lonely. Alone. Our, our daughter Abigail, <laughs> growing up, she, you'd realize when she re was about to reach her emotional limit, she would look at me and she'd go, Dad, I need some me time. <laughs> and I knew what that meant. She'd go up to her room. And she needed to be alone. Anybody know what I'm talking about, alone? I was thinking about this the other day. When I lived in Atlanta, I never took advantage of it. I wish I had, and I, and I was thinking about, you know what, I might explore this even now. There's a monastery in Conyers called the Monastery of the Holy Spirit, and they allow people to come with a pastoral reference to actually be alone and sit in silence for days at a time. God, that just sounds great to me. Why don't you write that down? As you plan out next year, why don't you write down possibly the idea of planning time to be alone? You know, married couples need to separate from time to time and be alone. It even says that in the Bible. Be alone. Jesus did this on a regular basis. Are you getting enough time alone? The two become one. Well, the two have to be two separate individuals to become one. You have to bring to the table your best, ideally, 
And sometimes we're not our best unless we get that time alone. It worked for Elijah, and it seemed to work for Moses alone. Do you have any, have you considered any, or are you waiting till January to think about what kind of intentionality will you actually carry out as it pertains to your walk with Christ next year? I met, I was talking to one of our church members here on the phone the other day, he called me, asked me some, for some advice, and he's, he ended up giving me advice, which is even better. He schedules a half day in prayer, I don't know how many times a year. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. The intentionality of getting away maybe once a quarter for a half a day. I like the idea of three days myself to pray. How about that? So the transfiguration, the first thing we glean and have in common with these two men with one another and perhaps us and with Jesus on this Instant is the fact that he got away and he was alone. If you're threatened in a relationship about the other person being alone, you need to be alone to deal with your insecurity. Okay? Number two, they each experienced fire on the mountain. Fire on the mountain. So Moses experienced a fire in the form of a burning bush. But the interesting thing about it was the fire did not consume the bush. That's interesting. Elijah called down fire from heaven in front of the prophets of Baal and some other group of Looney Tunes. And the wood was wet and the fire came down and the fire started on Mount Carmel. They both experienced fire in the mountain. What's that have to do with us? We should, we need, it's imperative that we experience the consuming fire of the Spirit of God. What is that? We allow our life to allow God to consume us, the old man and the old woman in us and the sin within us to refine us more into what he wants us to be, sanctifying us. We want the consuming fire, but we don't want the fire to destroy us. We want the fire to destroy the old us. We want fire in our life. What's John the Baptist have to do with that? Well, he says, I'm gonna baptize you with fire. That's what they say up there at the little missionary Baptist church I spoke at one time. Man, they can... I saw the guy this morning schlepping in a five-gallon bucket of soup, man. They're going to have them a big old party over there today. Short off Missionary Baptist Church, the best parking lot ministry in the history of the kingdom of God. I mean, if you work at the hospital, you go there to smoke. If, you, if you're in the ministry, you go there to just park and stare out into space. I was preaching there one night, and I got done and it was quiet and the, the pastor got up and scared, he just scared the tar out of me. He goes, mmm, that was some good eating. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was dinner there, that was dinner. 
And the guy in the back that had been landscaping all day came in late. He woke up. I thought, what a precious group of people still meeting on Sunday nights and will be till the rapture. I love it. Fire on the mountain. Do you get time alone? And are you open? Luke 9, 23. Luke 9, 23, we want to position ourselves in such a way that we pick up our cross daily, deny ourselves, and follow Christ. We want something in us to die, okay? You can't spend the majority of your life trying to live the abundant life, but nothing ever dies. Something has to die in us. That's what we want, a consuming fire of the Spirit. Something in us has to die. A passion, a lust, a a longing, a pride, an arrogance, a, a selfishness, a narcissistic tendency. Something has to die, fire in the mountain. Number three, they're in the desert, but not deserted. Jesus combined them all. He went to the desert to be alone. Listen, it's inevitable. I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't, want anybody, I don't care what anybody gets you emotionally hopped up about in a message. There is no heaven on earth. We are all going to face arid desert experiences in life. None of us are immune. If we make this heaven, what do we have to look forward to? We have challenges in this life. It's a, it's a broken, fallen, messed up world, okay? And some, some of us handle them better than others, but we're all gonna be in a desert at some time. It's just the way it is, I'm sorry. The lilies of the valley, they, they live in the desert, and their petals even, they point downward at times. That's how bad it is. They're susceptible to all weather extremes and storms and winds and they're vulnerable and no one's there to help them and nurture them. And there are seasons in our life when we're like that. You know, Elijah had them. He was fed by the ravens. John the Baptist had them. Nobody's immune and Moses did too. Moses was in the desert and relied upon manna on the desert floor and water from a rock. We're all gonna be at that point in our life. I don't care how uh, financially secure, insecure you are, it doesn't matter. We're all susceptible to coming to a point of absolute desperation. I just as soon ask for the desperation than get it and not know what to do in it. I wanna be desperate for Christ. And I don't want him to have to do anything in my life to make me desperate for him, that's for sure. Desert, but not deserted. And not only would they have fire on the mountaintop, they were oftentimes on mountaintops. We have to have a visual perspective, a big picture perspective of our life from time to time to understand what God's trying to do in our life and in our families. I was talking with someone not long ago and they're struggling trying to come back to their faith. They don't know what to do and they're coming up with their own ideology. It's kind of, 
In one way, it's good. Another way, it's just kind of not. But they're asking me, like I'm some sort of mediator between them and God. I'm not Jesus Christ. He's the mediator between them and God. Be careful. You have to go to the mountaintop from time to time to really think this through. Sometimes we need God to reveal himself to other people without our input or involvement. God's a whole lot more interested in them than we are, if you're honest about it. Sometimes we need to halt, stop, cease, desist, and tell them to go ask God to reveal himself to them. I mean, he died for them, I didn't, and nor did you. It's not until you get up on the mountaintop that you have perspective on things like this because down here in the trenches, in the busyness of life, it's hard to put these things together and connect the dots. Mountaintops. I'm not talking about the country club, although it could happen there. Number five, chasers are also chased. You want to really seek the Lord? You want to seek him and find him because you seek him with all your heart? You want to seek first his kingdom? You want to see that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? You want to chase the Lord, and you should, and so should I. Just realize this. From time to time, you might get chased as well. And they both experience that. Our little girl's home that we had represented here by this humble little godly servant, Lorraine Francis, how many weeks ago, who just came here and told us about this wonderful ministry that they have to these traumatized girls. Share with me this week, she said, Pastor Gary, she said, uh, It's not true, but they just wrote an article about us in a local paper that we're forcing these children into salvation and we're destroying their relatives' idols. Now they're being chased. Persecution. It's promised. Jesus promises it. Be a chaser, my friend, but don't be surprised if you yourself are chased. Invert that. If you have little to no resistance at all to what you do in your life, you might want to change some things so you do. Persecution. Persecution verifies that we're actually making a difference as we move against the darkness and we build the kingdom of God. They both had miraculous things happen as it pertained to food and water. In other words, they each had miraculous things happen in their life. The miraculous doesn't define us, but our lives shouldn't be void of it either, nor should our life and our faith be dependent upon it. The miraculous in a person's life and the life of a church should be welcomed by faith but not necessary to define God or to have faith in him. Nor should it be not welcome, not invited, and based on one person's doctrine, not even possible. That's ridiculous too. But these two men welcomed, moved in, anticipated the miraculous, as should we.
Number seven, they both wandered. And not only that, they wandered in the desert, usually surrounded by the number 40 in some way, shape, or form. That's what they had in common. Keep this in mind. Wanderers are not necessarily lost. But we aren't called to wander through our entire life. At some point in time, we've got to lay it down. We've got to define why we're here. We've got to state our mission. We've got to stay on course. We've got to chart with intentionality what God's called us to do. We've got to take inventory of our giftedness. We've got to take an inventory of what God's done in our life. We've got to put it together as a family, as a household, as an individual, as a college student. There ought to be seasons of defining where you are in your life, what God is doing in your life right now, and what it is that you are called to do. Each of these men shared in that. They appeared to wander, but their wandering had a purpose. It was a waiting period. God always has a purpose in our life. We can't We can't ever void ourselves or negate God's purpose. Always be about God's purpose in your life. Your business should be about, in some way, shape, or form, God's purpose. Loving people, listening to people, counseling people, speaking truth over people, as we did here this morning. If your business is void of kingdom work, Don't be proud of that. Don't excuse, don't make an excuse for that. You are a walking ambassador of reconciliation. You are a priest of God. Where you go, so goes the kingdom of God. You're a consulate, you're an embassy, you're a a person that people come in contact with and the results of your encounter are different than the contact they have with other people. So it may seem like you're wandering, but you also have to look at what has God put right in front of you on a daily basis. They both fasted. If you're gonna look at the highlight reel of these two guys' life and put some sort of uh, reasoning together as to why they're transfigured in front of the disciples, The first seven reasons I gave you seem substantial, as does this one, fasting. I'm trying to figure out as a pastor how I do this, and I haven't been successful yet. I've been successful in getting people to fast, be kind of inquisitive of fasting, We sort of uh, look forward to fasting. But I have yet to see fasting become less of a scheduled promoted event and part of our lifestyle. I haven't seen that yet. I don't know that many people in this particular culture in America have seen that. But boy, would that be great where when you look over your year, you say to yourself, maybe I need to get away on these dates and maybe I could go to that monastery just to try it and maybe I could change up the way that I look at the scripture a little differently. Maybe I could take a half a day every couple of months and just go somewhere and pray. I don't know what it is for you, 
But I'm waiting for the, I'm waiting for the person that says, you know what, and, and I'm, I'm waiting in my own life. We need to take a look at fasting uh, with a little more seriousness and a little more regularity. There's three things that really mark who a disciple is. Generosity, prayer, and fasting. All three of them are, are to be done in a shroud of anonymity. People shouldn't even know we're fasting. They shouldn't even know what we're praying. We're praying in a closet, and they don't have any business knowing what we give. But we ought to be doing all three. These two dudes had that down. Both of them parted waters. Elijah parted the waters with his clothing. Moses parted the waters with his staff. Interesting. Each of us should be about separation. We should, we should, we should understand the need for separation. Separation from the world and the world's influence on us. An undue amount of of influence of the world that leads to conformity, we should separate ourselves from that kind of influence. But we shouldn't be so far from the world and so out of the world that we're totally irrelevant and out of touch with people who need us to be relevant and in touch. Separation. We need to be able to recognize when we're too far under the influence of the world, we need to separate ourselves from that nor are we called to be monastic, cloistered in a cave, away from people, not ministering to anybody. Usually where we need to be, if you haven't figured this out yet, is between the 35-yard lines. Maybe between the red zones. Separation. Don't get entangled in too much of this world. But don't ignore it either that you can't influence it yourself. That one, these guys understood. Separation. They each had successors who were close in proximity to them. I was a director of um, a lot of things in my previous church. Seems like every time that people wanted something done and they couldn't get ready to do it, it became my job or something. I don't know what it was. My job was to do what other people wouldn't do. So one day we had this uh, lunch at this Mexican restaurant and um, there was this big announcement that we needed to hire um, an assistant pastor. And... Uh, I don't know, I saw everybody kind of, I, I kind of took an inventory of the room. There was like 14 or 15 pastors on staff at this church and I, I kind of took an inventory and I, I could see the wheels turning in some of their heads like, oh, that could be me, that's me. That could be, I, I know that's me. I feel God, that's what, God's speaking to me, that's me. <laughs> we were all a bunch of idiots. Anyway, so the, we're about to leave and the question was asked, the pastor looked right at me, he goes, what are you, what do you think? Uh, could we get somebody from another ministry? Do you know of somebody in another church or whatever? And I said, <laughs> I've, never, I've never held back words. Have you noticed that? I go, frankly, to be honest with you. I mean, do you want me to be honest? 
I think for as long as you're, you've been here, to even entertain the question of first hiring somebody outside the church is an indictment against your leadership. Anyway, I became the assistant pastor about six months later. <laughs> These guys built people and raised people up from within. What do you think this man's sitting on the front pew? You raise people up from within. You, you, you take people and you, you see what you've got and you raise them up. Look at, look at your sons and your daughters and make successors out of them. Build the kingdom with the people that are around you first. They knew that, both these guys. Anyway, I'm gonna go on. It says here, I got some notes here about some things I've observed in people's dialogue lately. People, I, I, I've seen this more and more. People saying, you know, this, the Lord's really speaking to me about something. And I'll say, okay, what is that? I don't know, I just feel like in a couple years from now, he's really gonna do something in my life in this direction, maybe three years from now, I don't know. And uh, they, they say, well, what do you think? And I say, I think that's possibly true, but it's likely garbage. Why would the Spirit of God speak to you just about what's gonna happen to you three years from now when he's got a whole bunch for you to do between now and the three-year period of time? What are we doing, skipping over that? I mean, where are we? We're right here, right now, let's move. Let's do something for the glory of God. I'm gonna read this to you, and this is a very important thing as you think about next year. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And if it is, boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is James, half-brother of Jesus, first published letter in the New Testament chronologically. What's his point? The point is, not one person in this room knows what's gonna happen next year. Not one. We may have an idea or think. We may have social media things that bomb us at left and right, the end of America, the end of the economy, the invasion of so-and-so. Nobody knows what's gonna happen next year. So what does that mean? Do we just throw caution to the wind and just let it happen since we're just a mist that vanishes? Do we just not make any plans? That's not what the man said. He says, we don't really know what's gonna happen. We can plan things, this and that. We don't know it, but some people in our church may not be here next year. They may have gone on to be with the Lord. That happens every year. Hello? We don't know. So do we not just not plan? Do we not, are we not intentional? Proverbs 16 and three, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Hey, 
If you come to counseling with me, you've probably heard this. Plan your work and work your plan. Plan your work and work your plan. What's he talking about? Plan your spiritual growth. Plan the efforts you'll make to grow in Christ. Plan your half days, your alone days, your mountaintop days. Plan your reading of the scripture. And with that plan in place that the Lord blesses, plan your fasting. Plan, every, plan more than you normally plan. Stop waiting on God to tell you what to do all the time. Do something. Take initiative with your own walk. Steward your own spiritual walk and your family's walk. Make decisions. Do them. You're not going to get in trouble with the Lord. And whatever happens, you'll be able to handle. You'll have the maturity to handle it. You'll have the wisdom, the clarity, the insight to adapt to changes in culture, changes in the marketplace, changes in your relationship. Be intentional. Commit your plans to the Lord. Commit to the Lord the fact that you're going to need to bone up on what it means to be an evangelist. Read some books. Do some things. Have some interviews. Go to or do what you've got to do. Figure out how you're going to up and raise your game for the glory of God, no matter what happens. But be intentional. Go back and listen to this message and what you'll hear probably are things you didn't hear the first time. Plan to be alone. Plan to die to self. Expect the desert, but know you're not deserted. Relish the mountaintop experiences that'll come your way, but chase God and know that you'll probably be chased yourself. He'll be your basic provider no matter what, even if it's not money. You need the provision of things more than money. You need anointing, you need insight, you need clarity, you need wisdom, you need a drive, you need an appetite, a lust for God. You need those things, an appetite for righteousness. You may feel like you're wandering, but listen, there's a purpose behind it. And it's usually waiting upon the Lord, a lesson we all need to be reminded of in any year ahead. Think about fasting. Then write down when you're gonna do it, and then do it. You have nothing. You have nothing, no plan unless it's on paper, nothing. You have to take the message and write it plain upon tablets that the messenger can run with it, then you got a plan. Before that, you've got nothing. You've got an idea, you got a promise. You're growing in wisdom and stature. Some of you are growing in wisdom and stature in new challenges and new seasons of your life. Some of you, it's widowhood. Some of you, it's empty nesters. Some of you, it's new challenges, new, new fields, new occupations, new marriages. But intentionally make a plan and seek your Lord and whatever happens, Hey, it happens. We'll deal with it. Because a lot of it will be good. And you know what? Some of it won't. At least at first blush. 
One thing's for sure. Whatever lies ahead, you're not gonna do it if you don't have a clear conscience. Very few guilt-ridden people accomplish much. Nor do they forgive others. People entangled in sin usually don't accomplish much either. But we have this table, thank God. Thank God. Let's pray. All that you have brought us through this year and things you've reinstituted, things in us have died. We've celebrated on mountaintops and we've trudged through valleys, but all for your glory. We chase you and sometimes we ourselves are chased, but whatever the case, we seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, all these things, other things will be added to us. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're separate. We're in the word as a church. We're praying. We're longing for you. We're learning. We're growing. And we're making mistakes. We're living. We're alive. And we have an identity rooted in Christ. Others will count on us next year, Lord, for help. Others will have great need next year to expand the kingdom, help us to be of help. People will look to us for insight and wisdom and provision. Equip us. Fill our barns to overfilling and let our vats brim over with new wine. Requests will be made of us to come alongside and build the kingdom. Help us to be of help to others. But before any of that takes place on a daily basis, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Forgive us of our sin. And know we're grateful for the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Come to this table to come one with the broken body of Christ. In the shed blood of the Lamb. Examine ourselves and we come and dine on the grace of God. Thank you for who you are, who you've been, and who you will be to us. Thank you, Lord, for this year, the breath in our lungs and the desire in our heart. Thank you for each other. Thank you, Lord, for those who have vowed to care for us in sickness and in health. We're a people most richly blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. So communicants would please come forward. Take a moment before you come, but do come. Examine yourself and have a conversation with your Lord and ask for forgiveness and bless him, bless him.
but come in humility and reverence to this table of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.